Hi, Mackle. Oh, hello, Hava. Hello. Hello. It's me. It's you. <sighs> In sunny the internet, Rhode Island. Little known fact that the whole internet is in Rhode Island. That makes a lot of sense to me, actually. Right? It checks out. Because Rhode Island's number one export, and this is true, is trash. So Yeah, well, I'm glad you said it. Not me. <laughs> it makes sense that the internet would be here. Just like to get a little bit like, whoa, on you. I feel like I read somewhere that all the electrons or something that encode all of the internet could like mm-hmm. fit in a really small thing like a teaspoon or a pinhead or something yeah i don't even know if it's electrons i don't know i'm just yeah i mean i'm sure if it was electrons i feel like a really huge number of electrons can fit in space yeah because they're teeny tiny i failed at that fun fact but there's something about the internet making it small if you think about (sighs) it or something right internet shrinkage michael yes hi how are you oh i'm great it's a sunny day in western massachusetts I'm sitting next to my puppy. Oh, I got a leaf blower. I'm excited for my leaf blower. Yeah, I I blew a bunch of leaves the other day. I'm trying to get better about leaf management for tick, tick tick-related reasons. Oh, right, right. That checks out. God, ticks. I miss living in the South where there were no ticks. There were a lot of things that sucked about being there, but... Wait, there are no ticks in the South? No, it's just like not a thing. I had to like learn a whole new way of being when I came up here. To, like, make sure to not get ticks. I was, like, completely unprepared for the level of caution I needed to have. Okay, interesting. They're also not really as much of a thing in the Northwest. Yeah, I heard about that, too. The Northwest is kind of climactically perfect, in my opinion. Right. It's everything I want. Which would make the East Coast the anticlimax. The East Coast is not ideal, I would say. It's not good. Pacific Northwest is perfect. It's got foggy mistiness, not a lot of poisonous junk, no ticks. They do have mosquitoes, but everyone has mosquitoes except for uh, people that don't. So, I don't know. It's perfect. But, uh, yeah, I have a leaf blower. I've been blowing leaves. It's been great. I have a music friend coming to stay over today, which is kind of fun. I'm getting back in the contradance playing circuit. Wow. Yeah. A twist I never saw coming. Yeah, I crashed into someone I, I knew I used to play with, and they were like, hey, let's play more. And they're, like, pretty serious. They're a pretty serious musician. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, sure, let's play. And then they're like, okay, great. Here's, like, seven gigs I got for us. Mm -hmm. So now I suddenly am playing music again. It's very surreal. Very surreal. Great. I love that for you. Thanks. How are you, Hava? Baruch Hashem. I'm well. It's It's a busy day for me. I almost missed our recording because I thought I had a different meeting at this time. And I went to that meeting instead, but I, that was wrong. Then I had to come here. Um, you succeeded. You made it. Yeah, I made it. It's a bit of a, yeah, a confusing day, but a good one. Beautiful weather. My boy f- is at his mom's house with our dog, so I have the house to myself. And I've just been like getting work done and, and watching Doctor Who on the other screen. Ooh. Yeah, I'm in the middle of a Doctor Who rewatch. So many hours of delicious comfort television. I'm just thinking about that whole conversation about the climax and the anti-climax was reminding me of last night, one of our mutual friends ordered food from a restaurant and she ordered a Coca-Cola with it, but she got a Diet Coke instead. And I was just telling her, in my opinion, Diet Coke 
is not a replacement for Coke. It's actually the anti-Coke. Like, every time you drink a Diet Coke, it deletes a memory of the last time you drank regular Coke. What's, like, the anti-embarrassment? Like, anti... Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, right, you want to find that. I yeah. was just thinking about how the then the East Coast is the anti-West Coast, you know. Every time you live on the East Coast, it deletes a little bit of the chill you gained from living on the West Coast. I don't know. I was never chill on the West Coast. I was very confused when I was on the West Coast. It took me a while to make friends because people thought I was too, like, mean or something. Yeah. And I mostly made friends with, like, East Coast transplants when I lived there. Mm, yeah. Well, that's because you're a little Jew. I am a little Jew. It shocks me still that there are like Jews on the West Coast. Yeah, like, like California yeah, Jews. Yeah, like California Jews. It's like a thing. It's like a And not just like Jews who live in California, but California Jews. Jews who live in California is what you were. A California yes. Jew yes. is yes. a Jew who has acculturated to California. And I, you know, I associate with L.A., you know, and like L.A. media world and like L.A. Immig and immigrants, a bunch of immigrants moved to L.A. and stuff like that. But yeah, it is weird to me. It's like a whole different world of Judaism that just does not register to me. But, you know, that's fine. Yeah. That's fun. We love variation on the pod. Yeah. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Am I right? Yeah. I remember the first time Sam took me to a Bukharan restaurant in Queens. Mm, and my mind right. was blown. My conception of Judaism has been a very narrow East Coast Ashkenazi one. You need to go to the Bukharan restaurant again so you can say you're double booked. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I should. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what we came here to talk about today. Yes, the smell of Bukharan restaurants, delicious, and also of my grandmother's perfume. Oh, interesting. It's very comforting for me. At least the one that I was into is so good. Um, This is not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about a question from a dear and beloved listener who messaged us to say, I'm wondering about texts that get at how our tradition talks about breath and also wondering if we have our own breath work practices. So Judaism and breath, what comes to your mind immediately, Michael? Oh, my grandmother's perfume. <laughs> right. The smell of a bar uh, and restaurant. Just beautiful. I don't know what it was. It was great, you know, the comfort. Yeah, I actually didn't even think about the function of fragrance as a kind of breath. Like fragrance, I feel like is a big thing in Torah. You know, the fragrance of the offerings is pleasing to Hashem, all kinds of stuff. I feel like the Torah is talking about smells all the time. Yeah, I, I guess I, I'm not aware of the smells talking about in, in Torah. I mean, besides the temple offerings. And then when I think of like Jewish stories, I think about food, the smell of food. I feel like people offerings. are getting perfumed all the time in Torah. Just perfume and incense is just happening. Yeah, anointing and stuff like that. Yeah, That's exactly. That's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. But yeah, so I went a couple different directions for this. I mean, there's there's quite a few texts that talk about breath, and it was hard to know which direction to even go with it because it's such a broad subject. So I just sort of brought my own take on a few key texts. And then I think something that's going to be like kind of salacious and interesting that most people will not have heard of before. Okay, great. Good. So the first thing I was thinking about, of course, was Genesis 2-7. And the Lord formed man out of the dust of the earth, and he blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So God, like, French kissed Adam's nose? Kind I of. think it's like C a CPR situation. CPR through the nose. 
Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, I guess like the opposite of CPR <laughs> or like reverse CPR. Anyway, yeah, of course, I was thinking of this text first and just thinking about how breath in this passage is what distinguishes us from objects. And that was making me think about like my little junior high self. I remember in middle school being in biology class and talking about like what makes something a living creature. And, you know, we had all kinds of very precise scientific stuff to learn about what how we define living creatures today. But right, right, this right. was making me think about how how do you define it if you don't have that or if you don't have all the kind of weird outliers that make you question what's a living being. Right, right, right. Like we haven't even pinned that down yet, you know, mm-hmm. from a scientific perspective. So you might as well have it be, you know, things are living are just things that God wrapped his lips around their nose and blew air into right there are things that have breath and breath is like feels like almost the um it's like an essential part of how human beings were like made in the image of god right like this sort of implies to me cosmologically that god is sort of full of the breath of life and that's how god was able to like blow some of it into us and so there's something about breath that is sort of just like this essential divine quality of life in the universe that's being communicated just in this little sentence about how we got breath. Yeah, this is very amoeba exclusionary, but I I, I love the metaphor. (laughs) We are amoeba phobic on this podcast. Yeah, we are amoeba bigots. Amoeba? Why not a uspa? A weeba? (laughs) Yeah. So selfish. We don't like amoebas because they're narcissistic. Then something going a little bit off the beaten path is this verse from Exodus 6 9. Wayi the bear Moshe Cain el Bene Israel. Wolo shamu el Moshe, Miketze ruach u menga vodakasha. Moshe spoke to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of, and the usual translation here is because their spirits were broken by hard labor. Basically, like slavery in Egypt had fucked them up. But the literal phrase is miketzel ruach, literally from shortened breath and from hard work. So this is like, again, touching on sort of a, a key concept about breath, right? Which is that this word ruach refers to both our essential spirits, as in the phrase their spirits were crushed, and also our literal breath. Rashi says on this passage, commenting on Miketzer Ruach, if one is in anguish, his breath comes in short gasps, and he cannot draw long breaths. Literally, whoever is troubled, which the word is Meizal, his spirit and his breathing are short, Kazra. And this is sort of like a pun on Meizal, Kazra, the similarities of those two sounds. Rashi is making a little bit of a joke. So basically, Rashi is, is Drashi. <laughs> that Ketzel Ruach is uh, talking about we're short of breath because of how fucked up we are by what's been happening to us in Egypt. Mm. So just kind of an interesting, like, uh, not only is our breath this sort of essential divine quality, but if we take this passage seriously, then it's also sort of like the quality of our breath is a measurement of the state of our being, which feels very in line with like other breath practices you know stuff you learn about meditation breathing and stuff like 
your consciousness and your breath are sort of interlinked. And I feel like the way this passage is talking about breath is sort of upholding that linkage. So those are methods of creating long breath as opposed to short breath. Exactly. Although some of them for creating short breath. There are like yogic breathing techniques for creating really short, intense breaths for creating heat in the body. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm a little scared of all this breath work stuff. Like it really. <laughs> How come? I think using the word work, it's like, no, work is like <laughs> making cappuccinos. You know, that's work, you know? But then, yeah. so it's like, okay, so it's like an activity you do for yourself, whatever. But then you don't want to call it breath play, right? That. Right. That's something completely so different. Like, what is it? Breath activity. Breath recreation. <laughs> breath stuff. I feel like if we could just call it breath recreation, that kind of <laughs> takes a little bit of the, you know, I'm not from California. I'm not from California. Right. You're not ready for all this stuff. Just call it breath recreation. Okay. So now it's time to get into the, what I would say is the really weird and special thing that I brought. You know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the sort of second part of the question, which was like, are there any breath work practices. And most of the other breath work practices I'm familiar with are sort of like just breath, just different ways of like either you're in a posture and you're breathing a certain way, or you're lengthening your breath, shortening your breath, but there's not really too much going on on top of the breath. You know, it's just like focused purely on the breath. And I personally couldn't find anything like that in Judaism. That doesn't mean it's not there, just I couldn't dig anything up in time for this episode. And then I was thinking like, okay, well, like shofar, the shofar is kind of a breathwork practice, especially if you've ever blown shofar. It requires a lot of breath control to make all the different sounds required of the shofar. Hearing the sound of the shofar is also a breathwork practice in that like you are specifically required to receive someone's breath in a particular way. So then that got me thinking more widely. And I remember this passage from a book called Meditation and Kabbalah by the famous expert on Jewish meditation, Arya Kaplan of Blessed Memory. This is an incredible book. I'm going to show it to Michael now. I have it. Oh, yeah. It's got a lot of olives. It's got a lot of olives. It's a big ass book. Arya Kaplan wrote this more well-known book just called Jewish Meditation that is a much more practical guide. This is like a fucking encyclopedia of meditation and Kabbalah linkages. It's a very dense book. He's like the opposite of Gershom Sholem. Gershom Sholem was like, I'll give you all the academic stuff about Kabbalah. Right. And then Arya Kaplan. And Arya Kaplan's like, I'm going to fuck you up. So I brought this passage, which I'm going to bring a couple different things from, which is talking about a practice from a work called Or HaSechel, which was written by Abraham Abalafia. Abraham Abalavia was uh, sort of the founder of what we think of as ecstatic or prophetic Kabbalah. So a lot of the Kabbalah we're familiar with that's like alive in Jewish tradition today tends to be what is sometimes referred to as theurgic Kabbalah, the sort of idea of like doing a tikkun, uniting the sefirot, like that kind of stuff, sort of like by doing stuff in this world, we have effects in higher worlds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's one kind of Kabbalah. And then Abraham Abalafia was most known for his work in this other kind of Kabbalah, which is more similar to other ecstatic and mystical traditions that we're familiar with that involve different techniques for achieving oneness with the divine. He was living from 1240 to 1291. He, okay, sometime we should do a full episode at least about this, at least one episode. In 1280, he traveled to the Vatican to try to convert the Pope. Oh, cool. 
which is iconic. And the Pope heard he was coming and he was like, okay, everyone get ready to kill this guy. What? But they didn't. They just imprisoned him for a while instead. But just like really king shit of him to do to be like, you know what? I'm going to convert the Pope. It's going to be fine. Is he doing theurgic magic or not? No, he's doing the ecstatic version of Kabbalah. He's founding the ecstatic version of Kabbalah. Okay, okay. Everyone else, like Isaac Luria, is doing theurgic. That's like all the Kabbalah that has seeped into modern Judaism is like 90% theurgic Kabbalah. For instance, the concept of welcoming the Bride of Shabbat and Kabbalah Shabbat and all that stuff, theurgic Kabbalah. So Abraham Abelafia wrote this thing called Or HaSechel that contains a bunch of his ecstatic techniques. And one of those techniques involves breathing and pronouncing the four letters of the name of God with different vowels attached to them. I'm just going to read something about this practice and then we can talk about it. It's a couple paragraphs, but there's no other way. It's like so weird and unique that I couldn't describe it any other way. Yeah, don't actually do it. (laughs) Right. Who knows what could happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the technique. When you begin to pronounce the Aleph with any vowel, it is expressing the mystery of unity. You must therefore draw it out in one breath and no more. Do not interrupt this breath in any manner whatsoever until you have completed the pronunciation of the Aleph. Draw out this breath as long as you extend a single breath. At the same time, chant the Aleph, or whatever other letter you're pronouncing, while depicting the form of the vowel point. The first vowel is the Cholam, above the letter. When you pronounce it, direct your face toward the east, not looking up or down. You should be sitting wearing clean, pure white robes over all your clothing, or else wearing your talit over your head and crowned with your tefillin. You must face east since it is the direction that light emanates into this world. With each of the 25 letter pairs, you must move your head properly. When you pronounce cholam, begin facing directly east. Purify your thoughts, and as you exhale, raise your head little by little, until when you finish, your head is facing upward. After you finish, prostrate yourself on the ground. Do not interrupt between the breath associated with the Aleph and the breath associated with the other letter pair. You may, however, take a single breath, and it may be long or short. Between each pair of letters, you may take two breaths without a sound, but not more than two. If you wish to take less than two breaths, you may do so. After you finish each row, you may take five breaths, but no more. So that's sort of a general description of what he's talking about. Obviously, right, this is a breathwork practice. There's like really coordinated and specific breathing going on, but it's also towing the line between breathwork and chanting. There's a chart here, which I'll show you in the book, of all the letter permutations. And you can see you would be chanting, for instance, if we look at his row of Aleph, right? We're combining Aleph plus the four letters of the name of God with all the different Hebrew vowels. So. The first row, for instance, is combining Aleph with all the vowels and the first letter of God's name, which is Yud. And it reads like, Ao Yo, Ao Ya, Ao Ye, Ao Yi, Ao You. So you're saying Aleph plus a letter of God's name plus a different vowel each time. So Aleph Yud with a Cholam, Aleph Yud with a Kamatz, Aleph Yud with a tsere, olive yud with a chirik, and olive yud with a kubutz. Okay, and then you do olive. Hey, which is ow ho, ow ha, 
ow, he, ow, he, ow, who. Oh, wow. Okay. And then you do vav, and then you do hey again. And so you go through a ton of pronunciations, and you change. So, like, just when you face upward when pronouncing the cholam, face downward when you pronounce chirik. In this way, you draw down the supernal power and bind it to yourself. Mm, Okay. When you pronounce the shuruk, do not move your head upward or downward. Instead, move it straight forward. When you pronounce the tsere, move it from left to right. When you pronounce the comets, move it from right to left. In any case, if you see any image before you, prostrate yourself before it immediately. Oh, okay. If you hear a voice, loud or soft, and wish to understand what it is saying, immediately respond and say, Speak, my lord, for your servant is listening. 1 Samuel 3.9 Do not speak at all, but incline your ear to hear what is being said to you. If you feel great terror and cannot bear it, prostrate yourself immediately. If you do not see or hear anything, do not use this technique again all that week. Oh, okay. This is interesting. I feel like this is similar to Merkava, mystical, you know, trying to raise through the different levels of reality. Yes, it's very, very related to that. It's very in that lineage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these probably hundreds of variations of using different versions of God's names and focusing on them or chanting them or somehow getting into a meditative state with your attention put on them. Interesting. This is a very breathy version. Yes, very breathy version, lots of physical choreography to go along with it, which is quite hard. At least for me, it's really hard to imagine kinesthetically all of the different things my body is supposed to be doing in this practice. Yeah, Um, I guess that's probably part of the point. It's supposed to put you in a different mental state. Yeah, So this feels like a solid answer to the second half of the listener's question, which is if we have our own breathwork practices. To me, this is a solid... Yes, this is a breathwork practice. It exists. It's documented. You can find it if you can get a copy of Or HaSechel, or you can find this excerpt in Arya Kaplan's Meditation in the Kabbalah on page 88. That's really cool. I also wonder if Nachman, you know, Rabbi Nachman would have stuff like this. Yeah, I didn't really look into any Hasidic sources or anything like that, because once I found this, I felt like it was a really compelling answer. (laughs) So. But yeah, I do wonder about that. I feel like in my limited experience of Hasidic literature, it tends to be a little less, have a few few less formulas, you know? Kabbalah loves to do stuff like tell you, like, do this very specific thing at this very specific time. And I feel like Hasidic literature is a little more woo, a little more like um, general prescriptions, like do a mikvah every morning. But that's a very generalized comparison. Well, good. So this is some breath recreation that you can get up to. to. <laughs> That's right. This is some divine breath play that you can do. So yeah, I would say we, in this brief episode, discovered that Judaism sees breath as an essential divine spark. Judaism sees breath as reflective of the state of your being. Mm-hmm. And Judaism uses breath as a method to contact the divine. Yeah. Great. So there you have it. I think that's a pretty complete answer, and I yeah. hope you think so, too. Five out of five. You <laughs> nailed it. So thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're not already, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash you to continue to support the show. Our episodes are short right now because we are behind the scenes working on a big, huge series on something called Temple OS, and you can listen to our Patreon episodes if you want to learn more about that. And we will be back 
at our regularly scheduled time with more Michigas. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.